You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Hello and welcome to season two of What Matters Most, a podcast hosted by me, Antonia Preble, and my good friend, Jackie Maguire, who also happens to be a clinical psychologist. Together, we discuss issues that have a real impact on how we feel about and experience our lives. I get so much out of these conversations, and I hope you will too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of What Matters Most. It's the second to last episode already, Jackie. Can you believe it? I know. It really does fly fast, doesn't it? It really does. And I was actually wondering this morning before you got to my house and are now sitting across my kitchen table recording this, looking back over season two and in fact, maybe over season one, is there something that has stood out to you about this process? Like, do you have a favorite episode or a favorite bit of feedback or, you know, did something surprise you throughout this process? Well, I think my favourite episode is the attachment episode, and we all know that. <laughs> my Can't get enough of attachment. Can't get enough of attachment. My probably largest surprise, and I have to be really transparent and honest with our listeners here, that Antonia is far more conscientious than me. So Antonia re-listens to every episode <laughs> that we record. and Before I, it goes before to air. Before it goes to air. Jackie lets it go. And I don't. <laughs> so we record, and I send it into the universe, <laughs> And I don't listen to them again. But one of them I did. So when the inner child episode came out, I did listen to it. I think I was commuting to the airport, so I had a bit of a drive to fill. And I listened to it and I had this, oh, is it going to be too therapy-like? Have I taken this away from a general public conversation into too much theory? Or has it become too psychobabble? And I think what has utterly surprised me is I've probably had more feedback on that episode from season one than any other episode, which I suppose there's multiple thought streams here, Antonia. One is actually the public are up for really expanding their knowledge and there's no such thing, I think, as being too therapy-like or too detailed in theory or people lap it up and they love it. But I think also it's just a reminder to all of us that sometimes our internal dialogue and our internal perception of how we are in moments or when we're working or performing is inaccurate and we have to check that out. And you know this about me, Antonio, often we finish and I go, oh, shit today, or oh, I don't feel like I was on top of my game today. And you'll say, oh, it was great. No, and I'm in- internally going, yeah, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> um, Proof is in the pudding that I won't listen to until it's out. Or I won't listen until we get feedback on it. But yeah, it was just a, rem- a reminder, I suppose, for me and everyone that sometimes your internal perception isn't actually how things land for other people. That is a really wonderful takeaway. And I swear to everyone listening, this is not rehearsed. Like I just threw that question at Jackie because I was reflecting on how far we've come or where we've come to throughout this process. I swear this is true, Jackie. That's my favorite episode too. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really, it really Isn't is. Funny? Yeah. And it's the one I've got the most feedback from as well. So if you haven't listened to the Inner Child episode, everyone, perhaps maybe this is a time to do it. It really touched me. It really, you know, I felt very moved talking about my own inner child and, and thinking about that and, and sharing that knowledge. And yeah, I think the fact that 
it was such a new concept for people, but quite a profound one. I found that really moving too. And what a beautiful insight that Mm. people now can have around their inner child and how Mm. important that is. So yeah, wow. Okay. We (laughs) we have the same favorite one. Maybe today we'll trump that. Maybe. (laughs) Let's see. Okay. So getting into what we are talking about today, this topic I think it's fair to say, Jackie, correct me if I'm wrong, feels like one of the cornerstones of work that clinical psychologists do because it is just so important in how we live and the skills around this area can make a profound impact on our lives. So we're talking about emotion regulation, those niggly little things called emotions that can either make us feel wonderful or feel terrible, (laughs) and seemingly can rule our lives and we can feel quite passive against them, right? Like we can feel like these emotions just overtake us and we just have to go along for the ride until they pass. But the good news is, in fact, there are many things we can do to help us navigate, not suppress, but help us navigate the dance of when emotions come in. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. But Jackie, would that be fair to say that emotion regulation is a really, really significant part of the work that clinical psychologists do? Oh, I think anybody that works in the field of mental health, be it a clinical psychologist or another or another specialist, absolutely would focus on emotion regulation for their clients. And I think if we look wider than that into how do we be preventative around both mental illness but then proactive around supporting mental health, teaching skills around emotion regulation is absolutely critical. Uh, the World Health Organization has labelled that that skill set as imperative to good mental health and well-being. It's really important for relationships. It's important for our performance at work. And as you say, emotions are integral into how we live, who we are as humans, and therefore being in control of those or being able to, I suppose, be the master of your fate when it comes to emotions and and how they interact with us and our behaviour is really critical. I also think from a personal viewpoint, and there's literature to back this up, that emotion regulation is a defined skill I think we need to be teaching through the education system. I completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think some classrooms and some teachers will do that because they're passionate and interested in it. It's come a long way since when we were at school. I mean, you know, if you think back to your education, Antonia, did your teachers ever talk to you about feelings or what they are? Or No, not a lot of mindfulness. <laughs> not a lot of mindfulness in school when we were young. It was probably more old school authoritarian style teaching. But I do think if we had a national curriculum around that, I think it would benefit our country. I mainly just remember singing a lot at school and doing one project on the Black Robin (laughs) when I was about 11. Otherwise, couldn't tell you what I did at primary school. Couldn't tell you what I did. But I don't think I did much emotion regulation. I remember progressing from pencil to pen in handwriting. Oh, me too. That was You know, when you got to go into pen. The bigger lines to the smaller lines. Yeah, and that was a really large... I was one of the last of my peer group to go to pen and to go to the thinner lines because then, as now, in fact, I didn't have very good handwriting. But yeah, it was a it was it was a big deal, wasn't it? Well, and I think probably you could look back and find me highly competitive in performance arenas, maybe from a young age, gunning to be the first. Blow me down with a feather. And now (laughs) I watch my daughter, who's nearly four, who who says, I want to be the first at kindy. You know, and I think, oh, I don't even talk about that anymore. That is genetically (laughs) Genetically imprinted. (laughs) 
That's so good. That's so good. Okay, so some people may have heard of this topic of emotion regulation, but it's very likely that a lot of people haven't. So it probably makes sense to start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Jackie McGuire, what is emotion regulation? Okay, so emotions are things that we all have, feelings that we all have, but included in emotions, not just other feelings, but the thoughts that are attached to that, the way your body reacts, and then in turn what we do with that. So if you think about emotions as not just a feeling, but a feeling that has attached thoughts, physiological responses, and behaviour, we have emotions from an evolutionary perspective to drive behaviour. And so you can kind of think of emotions as either approach or avoidance. You know, we have positive emotions that push us towards things. We have negative emotions that might draw us away from situations. So from an evolutionary perspective, they are behavior drivers. Emotion regulation, therefore, is when I'm having an emotional response. One, am I aware that I'm having an emotional response? And I know that might sound trite, but lots of people do not pick up in the early stages of a reaction that they're having an emotional response. Mm. They might notice it when they're in like a peak, very intense response. But I want you to think about emotions like a bell curve, Antonia. You know, they start small, they build, they have a peak, and then they start to dissipate. And so, you know, are we aware really early on about the emotional experience we're having? And then can you say, do I want to amp this emotion up? Is this a positive emotion? Is this a helpful emotion? Do I want to amp it up? Or actually, based on the situation that I'm in or the goal that I'm trying to achieve, is this an unhelpful emotional experience to be having? Please note that I'm not saying good or bad emotions. Mm -hmm. I'm saying helpful or unhelpful. And if that emotional experience that you are having is unhelpful because it's counterproductive to the goal you're trying to achieve, say you're in a work meeting and you're feeling really angry, would it be you know helpful for you to blow up and express that anger at the boardroom table? Probably not. You probably need to manage that, calm yourself, and then have a calm conversation later. So if it's unhelpful to the goal or, or the situation, which you're in, then you need to have strategies and skills to down-regulate. So you can think about up-regulating helpful emotions, down-regulating unhelpful emotions. And that skill set of being aware and exerting control over what you're feeling, thinking, what your body's doing, how you're behaving, is the process of emotion regulation. And I love what you said then, how it starts with awareness, because emotion regulation is absolutely not denying your emotional experience. No. And denial is the opposite of awareness. If you think about that bell curve, denial or suppression, and I think about suppression as head in the sand, you know, I'm not looking at what's going on, that will keep that emotion intense. So if you think back to the peak of that bell curve, it'll rise that peak. It'll make it, you know, it'll intensify your experience because basically that emotion hasn't been listened to. Go back to my idea of emotions are there to drive behavior. And if you haven't clocked what it's telling you, it'll get louder and louder and louder until it knows you've got the message. Mm. It can be quite scary though, if it's an emotion that is uncomfortable to Mm -hmm. experience, to face it and be aware of it, isn't it? Like it's a coping mechanism on many levels to put your head in the sand and and not deal with it. So what would you say to people who, that even this level of talking about feelings and kind of leaning into them with awareness before trying to manage them, if that feels quite like a scary thing? 
Um, I have lots of thoughts off the back of that comment, so so I'll just try and follow them all with my brain. <laughs> the first is, I think our primitive experiences, the families we grow up in, how much emotions are talked about, how allowed they were, absolutely impacts our, I suppose, level of comfort with emotions. But also there's a wide range of emotions. And so you might be really okay with being angry because anger was an acceptable emotion in your house, but perhaps you're not comfortable with disappointment or shame or judgment or guilt, for example, or or even some of those positive, helpful emotions. Maybe, you know, you grew up in a household where it was seen as showy to be confident or proud, for example. So I absolutely acknowledge that our early years, the role modelling around emotions plays into how comfortable we are with emotions. I also think there's a time and place for certain strategies. So, you know, if I'm sitting in that work table and actually underneath my anger is disappointment, for example, because just for a bit of geeky theory, we often call anger a secondary emotion, whereas generally there'll be a primary emotion that sits underneath anger, like fear or sadness, hurt, for example. And so, you know, as I sit around that work table, it's probably not the place to like face that head on and to kind of manage what those emotional reactions are and where they're coming from and why I'm having them. But maybe in that moment, a really useful technique is to distract myself. Distraction is very different from suppression. Distraction is different from denial. Distraction is a a strategy that says, this is not the time and place right now Mm. to be accepting feeling, letting go, accepting what's going on. But I need to find a a quick fire way of being able to dial down that intensity to that emotion so that I can be productive and effective and helpful to myself in this moment. So for those of you that perhaps are uncomfortable having this situation, by no means would I ever want to advise that people start trialing and practicing these emotions with uncomfortable feelings in high pressure situations. I think you need to give yourself time and space to learn about yourself, to learn about your patterns to emotions and to find strategies that work for you. Yeah, that's really sensible advice. So Jackie, would it be a good step to perhaps go through your top tips for emotion regulation? I imagine there are quite a few strategies that people can employ for different emotions in different situations. Would you like to just start talking about what might be helpful for people? Sure. And I think a useful way to think of it is how do you not get hijacked by those emotions and how do we not be fearful of those emotions? And so I think that's, you know, how you intro this session is is that it can feel like for people like they are completely overtaken by emotion. But I think if we've got really good awareness and we know we've got some some skills under our belt, then most of the time actually we can do a really good job at being in control of those experiences. And I say most of the time because I think everybody will know if you're in a highly stressful period of your life, if you've got a number of particular challenges going on, even if you've just had a crap night's sleep, actually your ability to perhaps employ those skills to draw on your emotion regulation skills might not be top notch. So most of the time we can do a pretty good job. Actually, that just sparked another thought in my head, which maybe uh, before we get into the techniques, it might be good to talk about this a bit, which is the emotional life that one can expect to have as a human. (laughs) Because often it's we can look at other people and think that they are fine all the time, mm. right? Because we are all very good at putting public masks on and doing what's societally acceptable. So when we're in the boardroom, 
there may be many people around the table who are actually also having an experience of anger, but because they're, they've been civilized and, and acculturated, they're able to get a handle on it and we can't see it. So I think it can feel quite isolating mm. when you have, and again, we're talking about sort of the uncomfortable emotions here. When you do experience sadness, fear, anger, shame, a lot or consistently, it's easy to feel quite isolated in that. So maybe should we just talk a bit about what is common <laughs> in a human in terms of how up and down it's going to be on a 24-hour basis, on a, on a weekly basis? Like I know there's no, there's no like one-size-fits-all experience for, for humans that's simplifying it way too much. When is having emotional experiences kind of fine and, and when might you know that actually you might need a bit more help with your emotional life if it's getting too volatile and difficult to cope with? Okay, so so I think let's break those emotions down into you can categorize them by the terminology would be valence. So is it positive or negative? Is it an emotion that, that makes you feel good? Is it an emotion that doesn't make you feel good? So that's one way in which you can categorize emo- emotions. But also then there's the arousal level or the intensity level. So that's not what, you know, there's the type of emotion you're having and then how intensely you experience that emotion. So I think it's quite useful to, to think of emotions kind of split in those two ways. Then I think if you think about, you know, a typical day or a typical week or what's helpful and useful, emotions are just part of everything that we do. We have positive responses to some things and helpful responses to some, negative and unhelpful to others. Some experiences will just be neutral to us. I think based on your personality, the habits that you have in your life, your mood and and where that kind of sits on a spectrum all can impact the valence and arousal level of your emotions. So if you think about my bell curve earlier, I'm going to try and um, pictorially describe this to our listeners. You may have an individual that perhaps has high sensitivity to emotions. Now, high sensitivity to emotions is different to your ability to regulate. They are different concepts. But just say you've got me and I can experience really positive valenced emotions and my bell curve goes really, really high above the baseline. And then maybe then I get really upset and I come down and I have a I have an you know an upside down bell curve really down low. And so I've got these really high peaks and these really low troughs. And maybe that's my emotional experience of I've got higher sensitivity to emotion and I oscillate up and down in the day. Then perhaps you have other people in your life that their peaks and troughs are much shorter. So maybe you could think of them as perhaps more steady in their emotional experience or less sensitive to emotional experiences. So they have a really, really tiny up and down bell curves that go above and below the baseline. Does that make, it that makes make sense? So, yeah, I'm imagining like a little little worm versus a really long worm. Yeah, little worm <laughs> versus a pointy mountainous worm. And so I think you then go, well, what might contribute to that? One, I think, is your emotional sensitivity. Two might be your mindset. So someone that perhaps is more generally optimistic, and I don't mean Pollyanna optimist, I just mean someone that actively searches for the helpful things in life. They try and keep things in perspective. They hold hope. They encourage positive emotion in their daily life. Like we know that emotions are contagious. So somebody that practices those habits are more likely to experience more up peaks. You know, they're more likely to have positively valenced emotional experiences than someone perhaps whose mood is low, 
you know, they're on the hypervigilance search for things that are going wrong, et cetera, and that may contribute to more down peaks mm-hmm. under that baseline. So hopefully that makes sense in terms of there is no normal. I think it's about whether you are managing your behaviour in a way that's helpful for you. Are you okay with it? Are you okay with your emotional yeah, and, experiences? And how, and how do they then play out at work, in your relationships, with your relationship with yourself as well as others, you know? And so regardless of whether you're a, a big peak, highly sensitive person or a small peak, less sensitive person, you know, if you're able to spot those emotions, regulate them when you need to and act in a way that's helpful to you, all good. You know, those emotions are giving you messages, you're hearing them loud and clear and you're responding to them appropriately in the best way you see fit. That's very different, I think, to somebody that perhaps feels like they've got less grasp on their emotions or like they feel like their emotions are controlling them. So if you're in a position where you feel like your emotions are in the driver's seat rather than you, then I think that's a point in time to go, hang on, how do I get a perhaps a, a better grasp on this? I want to be in a position where actually I'm navigating my behavior rather than feeling like this internal force is at the driver's wheel. And again, the wonderful news is that we can get better at these things. They are all skills that with practice, we will get much better at. So there's not a person out there who cannot feel more confident that if they practice these skills, you will be able to manage your emotional experience more easily. And like Jackie said, it's not that you will be numbing yourself to having emotions. I imagine, Jackie, if you're a sensitive person, person to emotions, you will still feel those high peaks and those low troughs, but with awareness and practice at regulating them, you can manage the feeling of that emotion in a smoother way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think none of us would want to live a life devoid of emotion. And you know what I also know to be true is that if we want to experience the good stuff, the celebration, the achievement, the awe, the excitement, then you also have to be able to tolerate unpleasant emotions. They're a package deal. And what happens, I think, sometimes for people is those unpleasant emotions are scary or uncomfortable. So people avoid them, they suppress them, they lock them away. But unfortunately, what then happens is if I'm not allowing myself to experience the hard stuff, then I'm going to stop experiencing the good as well. So I think that's often a motivator for people to say, hey, if you want a life rich of the good stuff, then we need to get really good at being able to face the unpleasant, the uncomfortable and manage them rather than trying to cast them aside. So when Jackie and I were thinking about sponsors for this show, it was really important to both of us that we partnered with companies that align with our values and our way of thinking. Absolutely, it was a non-negotiable. So we are really delighted to team up with Whoop, a beautiful food box company that helps you create delicious dinners in under 30 minutes. Do you know, Antonia, my family have used Whoop over the years. And if you're anything like me, which I know you are, life is busy and the mental load is large. And I'm always looking for effective shortcuts to make life simpler and easier. And with Whoop, it is amazing. The veggies are pre-chopped. The sauces are handmade and man, can you taste the difference. The recipes are just so easy to follow. And what I love is that the ingredients are sourced right here from New Zealand. And Antonia, this is the bit I know you will love. With Whoop, there is so much less chopping, less mixing, less faffing. And what does that mean? It means less cleaning up. 
Yes, Jackie, you know me very well. The no chopping and way less cleaning up factors could be my favourite parts of Whoop. And I actually find that Whoop just makes my whole day easier. Just knowing that I don't have to think of what we're going to eat, I don't have to go to the supermarket, I just don't have to think about dinner at all is a huge weight off my mind. I'm getting hungry talking about all this beautiful food. Do you know another wonderful thing about Whoop is that everything is recycled through their back-to-base program. You just rinse out the containers, you put all your packaging back in the box, even the soft plastics, and you leave it out to be collected when your next box is delivered. And if all that wasn't tempting enough, Whoop are offering our listeners 30% off their first box. So you just head to whoop.co.nz and use the code podcast at the checkout. That's w-o-o-p.co.nz and use the code podcast. Let's break these skills down, let's, eh? Let's break Antonio's them down. Antonio's asked me that about five times and I haven't directly answered the question. So come <laughs> I, on, Jackie. I think it's because I keep to it. <laughs> I think it's because I keep interrupting you as my brain fires off with lots of new thoughts. But yes, let's actually get down okay. to the title of the topic. Yes. What are some skills in emotional regulation? Yeah. So think of the start of that bell curve. The first set of skills is how do you hone your awareness? How do you become better attuned to picking up what you're feeling early? And so There are skills like if you practice mindfulness, we know that everyday time spent focusing on your breath, being in the present, not being distracted by technology, trying to just be still with yourself helps improve those neurological pathways that are good for awareness. So mindfulness practice can be like mindfulness meditation, maybe you use an app like Headspace or Calm. Uh, Mindfulness can also be really mindful walks in the bush or mindful cooking or mindful washing of your hands or, you know, like just being able to find ways of being present and still is a really helpful way of fine-tuning attention. I remember an exercise that my supervisor gave me once, and I don't know if I've spoken about this on our podcast. We, I speak about it a lot at work, but I'm someone with a busy brain. I'm not very good at naturally just pausing and taking stock. And she sent me home with a reel of little yellow stickers. Have I spoken to no. you about this before? No. Okay, good. <laughs> New news, Jackie, good. For those of you that are old enough to remember when we used to have paper files rather than electronic and all the files in the filing cabinet would get a, a different colour sticker. Yes. So those those stickers. And she sent me home and she said, Jackie, I want you to put a yellow sticker in various places throughout your life. So, you know, I had one on the back of my phone. I had one on the fridge door. I had one on the mirror in the bathroom. You know, just all in random spots. And her task to me was any time you see a yellow dot, I just want you to ask yourself, what am I thinking and how am I feeling? Oh my God, I love this. I want I want to do this immediately yeah. in my life. So such a, good idea. such a simple, simple task, but it's creating a habit in your brain to simply take stock of yourself. And so let's all go and buy little yellow stickers or whatever your own version is of that. Maybe you set a reminder on your phone, what, however you want to do it, can you various points throughout the day, get yourself to simply pause and go, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? And that is another way of really building your awareness. That's so good. It's it's so simple. And I can immediately see how useful that would be. And why that's helpful is if you think about that bell curve shape, if you can attend to your emotion early on, 
you've got a much better chance at regulating it quickly, meaning that your arousal level or how intense that emotion is going to be doesn't get as high, doesn't get as intense because you can put a strategy in early and you end up with a baby bell curve rather than a big bell curve. So I suppose first step is build your awareness. Second step is then if I'm having an emotional reaction, can I name it? Because we've talked lots before about name it to tame it. If you can put a label on what you're feeling and an accurate label, you've got a better chance of regulating that emotion very quickly. If you can put a label on it, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling concerned, I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm feeling disappointed, I'm feeling taken advantage of, I'm feeling whatever it is. If you can put a label on it, it gives you a bit of perspective on that feeling. It gives you a bit of space between yourself and that feeling. So so you can look at it objectively rather than that feeling completely overwhelming you and running you. And we know that when you name an emotion, it activates a part of the brain that kind of diverts your attention away from that kind of automatic mm. uh, evolutionary response. Because you're using like a higher functioning yeah. process yeah. to, yeah. You're on, using part of on your mammalian brain. Yeah, yeah, brain yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're using part of your frontal lobe rather than your amygdala and your hippocampus, which is yeah. where emotions are generated. So one, be aware. Two, name it. Now, people often say, oh, Jackie, how do I know if I'm like accurately describing what I'm feeling? You know, not everybody grew up around my dinner table with psychologists and social workers as parents and emotions (laughs) being a regular part of family dinner table chat. And so my recommendation is often to go onto Google and to just type an emotion list, print out a list. There are a heck of a lot of emotions. Humans are very good at identifying what they're feeling when you can pick it off a list rather than self-generating. And really what you're doing is growing your emotional vocabulary. And so my recommendation to people is not when you're in the intensity of an emotional reaction, because when you're intensely feeling something, you can't think clearly. Even if you think you can. You You can't. can't. (laughs) No, you're emotionally responding rather than calmly, cognitively responding. So when you've calmed down, you know, at the end of the day or an hour later when you feel calm, can you retrospectively look back and go, what triggered me? What was happening before I had that emotional experience? Then what were the symptoms of that emotional experience? So what was I thinking? What did my body do? And then can you look through that list and point out what you were feeling? And the more practice you have of that, you basically kind of grow your own dictionary, right, of your emotional responses and the typical situations that might trigger those off. Mm, And that would be so interesting just to, yeah, have an illustration of your emotional life. And to really get scientific about oh, how many times do I feel happy in a day versus anxious? How many times do I feel scared versus mm-hmm. angry versus joyful? Mm-hmm. That would be so interesting to really see your emotional landscape in quite a specific way. And like a pure cognitive behavior therapist would probably give you a grid with your day broken down into quite small time frames, and that'd get you to track your, your mood, your feelings, your emotions all day. That's one way of doing it. And I think you can also just note when you've had a large emotional experience that has had an impact on you and you can go back and do a retrospect autopsy on that situation and Mm -hmm. go, what happened? Do a postmortem. Yeah, great. Okay, so we're we're practicing awareness, we're expanding our emotional vocabulary in order to identify our own. Then the third step is, well, how do you actually down-regulate those unhelpful emotions? So I've noticed I'm having an emotional reaction. 
I can label what I'm having. If that emotion is then unhelpful, you need certain skills to be able to dial it down. And there are a million and one ways in which you can do this, which is why there's no easy, you know, ABC solution or or paint by numbers way. But everyone would be doing it. (laughs) And and actually, we all have different strategies that work better for some of us than others. Some strategies are better attuned to certain situations than others. So like, let's just talk about a whole variety of ways. I like to think of how do we calm ourselves or regulate ourselves in the moment when we're having a very extreme, intense response. I use the strategy TIP for people. So what are they? The T stands for temperature. If you cool your body down, it's a physiological regulation strategy. If you cool your body down, it calms you down. So that might be standing outside if it's winter, running your wrists under cold water, having an ice cold glass of water, anything that can kind of, having a cold shower if you're at home, you can kick your body into feeling cold. How that operates is it activates what's called your vagus nerve in your mm. in your body. Your vagus nerve is the controller of your calming parasympathetic nervous system and it releases a whole lot of oxytocin and oxytocin's your hug drug. Oxytocin's the hormone you have when you cuddle a baby, play with the dog, you know, when you feel connected and bonded. So changing your temperature to be cold is a physiological way of calming, of regulating that emotion. That's so great to know. Again, just because it's something really practical, mechanical that people can do external to what's going on in their brains that will have an effect on their brains. Like it's, you can't get that wrong. You just do the process and it will work. Correct. Yeah. The I stands for intense exercise. So Exercise that makes you puff releases serotonin. Serotonin is your happy drug. So again, it's really if if you're inducing a positive emotion or state that serotonin causes, it cancels out the unpleasant negative emotion that you've been having. So intense exercise, whether you're star jumping on the spot, doing your press-ups, running around the block, if you exercise to make you puff, it'll shift that valence of your emotional experience. Whilst it's not part of the acronym, what else produces serotonin is singing and dancing. So you like crank a song in the car, for example, you know, you dance with the kids at home or on your own, you don't need kids, you just put the music on. Anything that's serotonin inducing will will calm you. I'm so glad you brought that up because I have had this exact experience, but I, I didn't know what was going on hormonally inside me. But I know when I'm having a big experience, like say, for example, I'm on my way to an audition and I'm really nervous about the audition, let's say that. So I feel my heart is racing. I feel tense. My jaw is tense. I'm having negative thinking. I feel worried. I'm imagining it going wrong, all those Mm -hmm. sorts of things. And I have found in those situations where I'm really quite activated by fear or anxiety, however I classify at the time, trying to focus on my breathing or like being grounded and what can I see, touch, taste, feel, smell, it doesn't work mm-hmm. because I'm too kind of caught up in the speed and intensity of the feeling. So I've developed this habit of if I'm feeling nervous on the way to an audition, I turn on the radio and I sing mm-hmm. at the top of my lungs. And that is the thing that I find the best thing that works. And if I'm you know, in the car, then I can't do any physical exercise. But I've similarly found if I kind of match the emotional intensity that's going on inside me with physical intensity outside. So if it's like running really, really fast on the spot or doing star jumps or doing press-ups, that shifts it. So mm. that's really cool to hear 
Why? Yeah, but you go back to that. Emotions are there to give you a message to drive behavior, to approach or to avoid. And so if you've got a physical intensity in you from this emotion, your your body needs to feel like you've responded to that, right? So right. the physical intense exercises is like your response to say, yeah, I've got it. I'm in action mode. Huh. Because I'm feeling fear, mm. so my body wants to run away, yeah. I guess, right? And yeah. so then if I move a lot and intensively, my body goes, oh, okay. You've she, got it. She's she's doing it. She's yeah. she's doing, she's actually literally is doing the thing we want her to do. Correct. Because it's making me feel like I should run away in terms of that primal brain yeah. feeling. And yeah. it's interesting actually about the music and and I only know this this week, and this is not a branded plug, but um, I was <laughs> at all, but part of my real work work this week was that I was asked by ASBN Youthline to come and support the launch of Benny's new song that was produced by her in conjunction with AUT neuroscientists. Oh. And they've designed the song to help calm anxious feelings in young people. Wow. And so I knew always that music was helpful, but I didn't really know the ins and outs of it. But to help them launch the song to their people, I had to do some reading. And in my reading, what I learned was that music that has slow beats, so 60 to 80 beats per minute, helps you calm and relax. Music with a higher tempo helps get you excited or pumped or confident. So maybe when you're on, you know, the way to an audition, you actually want to be in action mode. So maybe you listen to like... I belt out pop tunes. Yeah. Like that's what I want to yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted music <laughs> to help you sleep or calm down or or to feel less anxious, maybe you put on a slower song. So it's interesting when you actually start yeah. to learn the ins and outs of music and how, how it does impact our, our mood and, yes. and our bodies. And that makes sense, right? Like it does, that feels like, oh yeah, if, yeah. yeah, yeah, chilled out music you put on when you are feeling calm even because you kind of want to match yeah. that feeling. But yes, that, so it makes sense that it would also help to calm. So they're half of our tip strategies. The, the, the P, there's two Ps, it's tip with a double P. The first P is called paced breathing and that's really diaphragmatic breaths and I'm sure in your work Antonia you are very well versed in diaphragmatic breathing which is can you breathe from your belly or your diaphragm rather than your chest so when you breathe from your diaphragm which if people don't know how to do that lie on the floor put a tissue box on your belly and start to breathe deeply not like (gasps) but like calm deep breaths from your diaphragm belly that tissue box will move up and down and your chest should stay still. That's how you know that you're nailing that. That's basically the fastest route to your amygdala and hippocampus to to kind of dial those down. So paced breathing is an excellent, again, physiological way of calming the emotion that you're having. So paste is literally just being breathing from the diaphragm or just because the word pace, it suggests some sort of timing to it? Uh, There's so many different ways, square breathing, two, four breathing. I just think if you're breathing slowly in a controlled manner from your diaphragm, then that's what you want to be achieving. I don't want people to get hung up on like how many counts they need to do because then people get over-focused on the number rather than... And anxious about that. (laughs) Yeah. The second P is progressive muscle relaxation. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Do you do it ever? Not much. (laughs) (laughs) No, Jackie, I don't. I do do more of the um, singing and the moving and and the breathing, but... No, so yeah, but it, yeah. it does sound like a good idea though. So, so progressive muscle relaxation gets you to move through your body muscle group by muscle group, tensing muscles, you know, make them as hard as concrete, squeeze squeeze them as tightly as you can for a certain period of time, five seconds, 10 seconds, and then very slowly relax your muscles so they become like jelly. And if you can go through your body progressively, as the title suggests, then that ability to loosen your body 
sends a message to your brain of you can't be in danger. You don't need this big unpleasant emotion because you're floppy and relaxed. Mm. So it's like a discordant message, right? And, And again, that's a physiological way of emotionally regulating. So tip is you don't need to do all four strategies. They might all be useful in different settings, but they are a range of strategies, physiological strategies that can help regulate your emotions. Prepare for your next adventure with Emma Sleep. For over seven years, Emma has transformed the sleep of more than four million people worldwide by working with sleep experts to carefully design and engineer products that provide great support and pressure relief for your most peaceful sleep ever. Now you can wake up feeling fully refreshed, recharged and ready to face the day with a smile. Upgrade to the coolest, most supportive sleep today with their range of mattresses, mattress toppers, pillows, mattress protectors, and even ensembles and bundles where you can save more. And if you're still unsure about upgrading, don't worry. Emma Sleep offers a 120-night trial for their mattresses and beds, so on the occasion you don't find it a match for you, you can simply return it within the 120-day period and get 100% of your money back guaranteed. But that's not all. They also offer a 10-year warranty for their mattresses and free delivery nationwide. So what are you waiting for? Head over to emmasleep.co.nz and shop using our code UMATTER for an additional discount. So that's one set of strategies. That's a great set. I love that set. Another (laughs) set which you mentioned earlier is grounding. Basically what grounding means is when we're having an emotional experience, what tends to happen automatically is that you hyper-focus on that emotion, whether you ruminate and think about what you're feeling or, you know, you really begin to notice all the physiological signs to that and you hone in on it. But when we go internal and, and focus on that emotion a lot without doing anything to it, it gets more intense, that arousal increases. So grounding is about diverting your attention from internal to external, helping you become present in your environment as really a distraction to help your brain calm. So you can do it, like you said, I want you to name five things you can see, five things you can hear, five things you can smell, five things you can taste. That is absolutely a set of strategies lots of psychologists would would use with their clients. I think I'm a more tactile person. I like to use my body. And so the strategies that I use quite regularly with people is to use their body to help them become grounded. So for example, can you sit up really straight and just focus on your posture? You know, notice how your spine elongates, put your shoulders back and just pay real attention to that beautiful ballet posture as you sit here. Um, Can you put your hand on a flat surface in front of you, so the table in front of you if you're in a meeting, for example, and you will notice most likely the table is cooler than your hand. And that's because if you're experiencing an unpleasant emotion, generally heat's produced from your body, so the surface will be cooler than you. And again, if you can just focus on that temperature difference, focus on the coolness of the table, the chair, whatever's in front of you, again, it should be enough distraction to hopefully regulate enough to get through what you're needing to get through. I'm not saying it's going to fix why you got triggered. I'm not saying it's going to completely 
help you regulate the entire emotion, but it should be a strategy that helps enough to get you through the moment. Maybe you press your heels down into your shoes or into the floor, and again, you just focus on that sensation. So these are all really physiological grounding ways to shift your attention to get you to regulate enough to be in control of your behavior. I think I'm a tactile person too. Mm. I th- yeah. And yeah, like I don't want to put anyone off the what can I see, touch, taste, hear, and smell because that is a, a really useful technique that might be really useful for you. So do try it. But yeah, for me, and that can help me if I'm having like a less intense emotional experience. But for me, if I'm really activated, then I need something more physical than that. But I think I can really see how, again, just the difference for my process of going, I can see a brown table, putting my hand on it and feeling the temperature change and focusing on that. I can, I think that would be, yeah, far more useful for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're like your body strategies, right? So I'm going to go through in terms of regulation, I'm going to give them to you in categories. They're your physical strategies. Then we spoke about earlier that part of emotions is that you have thoughts attached to them, right? Unfortunately. And, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and a thought can produce an emotion and an emotion can produce a thought, chicken and egg, who knows which one comes first. I think it varies. But there are a set of cognitive strategies to help you regulate emotions. So let's come up with a real thought that might produce an emotion. And I'll just use myself as the guinea pig because I haven't prepped Antonia to do this, so I won't <laughs> put her on the spot. But say I'm somebody that doesn't like big crowds. I don't really like networking and socializing. I get quite anxious in those situations. So maybe I have a thought like, I don't want to go. I'm going to be uncomfortable the whole time. No one's going to want to talk to me. Maybe that's my thought. No one's going to want to talk to me. And as I have this thought, I start to become nervous and overwhelmed and I have this desire to avoid, right? Perhaps that's my whole situation that's happening inside my body and and, in my brain. Some cognitive strategies might be, okay, Jackie, can you balance or reappraise that thought? Like seriously, like give me the evidence that when you go to things, no one wants to talk to you, you know, and you actually have to sit and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to think about the last five times that I went somewhere, you know, did anybody talk to me in the room? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Get down to the brass tacks a bit. Yeah, yeah. Like if you were a lawyer standing up in court providing evidence to the judge, what's your evidence to back that thought? And so that is a strategy. It's called reappraisal that can hopefully help you find a balance point of view, which might be, I have the worry that no one's going to want to talk to me. But reality is, more often than not, I end up engaged in conversation. And so whilst that might not remove my anxiety completely, it might reduce it enough, drop the intensity of that bell curve enough that I can then go and engage in the activity. Yeah. So that's one way of regulating from a thought perspective. The second are diffusion tactics. And again, we may have spoken about this before, Antonia. I'm just not quite, I can't quite remember. I don't think we have. And so diffusion comes from ACT therapy. Russ Harris, who wrote The Happiness Trap, I I talk about him a lot. He's one of my go-tos. I think he's he's pretty amazing in terms of how he translates theory into practical everyday activities. And diffusion is that idea about how do you get space between 
you know, that emotion and yourself. Because it can feel like there's none. It can feel like it's completely like you. smacked up against your yeah. face. It's you. You are in it. it I am you. anxiety. Yes. I am sadness. This I is my am hopelessness. Complete experience yeah. right now. Yeah. And this is the truth experience because it's my experience. Yes. yes. And so part of that might be I'm having the thought when I want to talk to me. So that I'm having the thought inserting that before your thought is the diffuser. It gives you space. Perhaps you picture that thought in your head and you go and blow up the letters with a bazooka. Perhaps you put that thought on a leaf and watch it rush down a stream. Can you find some way of separating yourself from that thought with the underlying principle being thoughts are just words strung together, they're not facts. So that is a cognitive way, again, of trying to down-regulate the emotion by coming in from the thinking perspective. They feel like facts though, Jackie. They totally do, but why are do they? they feel like facts so much? <laughs> why can't we see that they're not facts? It just they just it feels like you're saying in your head a true thing when you have a thought. Well, but I bet you it's only certain thoughts or certain feelings. And I think when you think about how emotions are processed, so at the ev- end of every day when you go to sleep, Antonia, everything that's happened in your day passes through your hippocampus. Your hippocampus is like, it's a little seahorse-shaped part of your brain. It's in your middle brain next to your amygdala. And the day's events pass through that hippocampus and then they go and get stored in your frontal lobe, like into filing cabinets. So when you need those memories again, you've got a very sorted, organized way of being able to draw out what you need. Emotions or or, or things in your day that have a high emotional content get stuck in your hippocampus. It's not all emotions, but basically very unpleasant or traumatic or really intense unpleasant emotions get stuck. And if they're stuck, they're kind of like live wired. Imagine like little vibrating memories sitting in your hippocampus. So the next time you go to sleep and you've had an experience with the same emotional response attached imagine it going and like sticking together with that first emotional experience and yeah it gets gets bigger and so every time you have a emotional experience that feels the same your clump of vibrating little memories grows they don't get processed they stay live which means that they're very easy to be triggered off in your everyday life it means your past can become the present very quickly and there's a whole therapy stream about helping you transition those emotions those memories from live wired you know stuck in your hippocampus memories through to processed orderly frontal lobe memories it's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing EMDR I've heard of that and I am so interested in it so I suppose the reason I bring that up is those situations that feel like you are the emotion, where you are triggered very, very quickly, where the emotional response is out of kilter to the situation, my educated guess is that that has roots Mm -hmm. and it has historic roots that are now playing out in your present day. And I don't think that will be the case for every emotion in every situation. Yeah. Does that That does make sense. sense? Yeah. So it feels like a fact because it's an old one and you've had it many times before. Yeah. So it seems to just be proving yeah. the case for a previous yeah. thought. And you get the yeah. intensity of your past showing up in your mm-hmm. present. Yeah. 
So diffusion, reappraisal, the other really proven uh, ways to regulate thoughts, emotions, are writing and talking. So ruminating, sitting and thinking about what you're feeling will make it worse, it'll intensify it, but journaling and writing is known to help you process and regulate and talking to a helpful person that's non-judgmental, that doesn't wind you up, that is also proven to be really helpful. So they are known proven emotion regulation Mm. strategies from a cognitive perspective. And rumination is different from having an awareness and naming, right? Rumination is chewing the fat. That's the... The The thing cows do. The things cows do, (laughs) yeah, the definition of rumination. So rumination isn't processing, it isn't trying to look at things from a new angle, it isn't trying to problem solve, it isn't trying to reappraise, it is simply I am just mulling over and over and over whatever is causing my emotion. You're stuck, You're stuck in it. It's like coming at it from the centre as opposed to from the edge of it. Yeah. Yeah. So they're your cognitive strategies. Still with me? I'm so with you, loving it. Then you've got emotional strategies and the emotional strategies really are how do you shift the valence of what you're feeling or the intensity of what you're feeling? How do you induce positive emotions to help cancel out the negative? Being able to do things like sing, dance, feel a sense of mastery, distract yourself and go into the bush. Can you go and do something that is going to induce a completely different emotion to what you're feeling? And if you can do that, that's really, really helpful. Again, helps you regulate the emotional experience you're having. The other part to this, which is getting quite a lot of airtime in the psychology world right now, is is self-compassion theory. Mm -hmm. So can you treat yourself as you'd treat your best mate, your partner, your child? Can you hold compassion and kindness for yourself? It's really understandable why you're having this reaction. You know, you had a pretty shitty past, you know, and it's understandable that's still hurtful. Or, you know, you've had crap sleep for the last three days. No wonder you're feeling like you're really quick to react. You know, it doesn't mean that your behaviour or response was okay, but it might give you some compassion and understanding for why you responded that that way. And when we can respond to ourselves uh, with compassion and understanding, again, that helps us regulate. That's so lovely to hear that, Jackie, because I think it can be really common experience if you're having a difficult emotion to judge yourself for having that emotion, mm-hmm. right? You can go down the rabbit hole of having like the primary emotion of fear and then like really not liking that you're having that primary emotion of fear mm-hmm. and having secondary guilt or sh- mm-hmm. shame or anger around that. Mm-hmm. So by flipping that and instead having compassion for yourself, I can really see how the cascade of uncomfortable emotions could be kind of gently stopped in its tracks. Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful way of summing that up. I think my last emotional technique is called radical acceptance. And I think we have spoken about this in the past, Antonia. It's a term that comes from dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, which is really a therapy stream very much based around emotion regulation, helping people understand what sits behind their actions and learning some new ways of managing those. And radical acceptance is letting go is not fighting the fact that sometimes you might have these experiences or are faced with certain triggers. Can you embrace them, accept them, and let them go? Wow. Wow. I sing a lot of Frozen in my house. Let it go. (laughs) (laughs) Works on many levels. The message and the vibe, both really good. The last element then is how do we behaviorally regulate our emotions? What can we do that might either help us approach 
more helpful emotions or actually is there cause sometimes to avoid certain triggers and whilst we talk about suppression being unhelpful I think tactical avoidance is actually completely okay if you know there are certain situations that are really damaging for you or cause you great distress and they're legit then I don't think you need to put yourself in harm's way if there is an alternate route. Mm. (laughs) You know, if there's no alternate route, then I think we have to find ways of protecting ourselves and navigating that. But if you don't have to face certain people or certain situations, then I think tactical avoidance gets my backing. Yeah, interesting. And I guess there's a distinction to be made here between, like, say, going back to your example of feeling anxious about going to the networking Mm. party, you could think, okay, well, I just won't I'll just tactically avoid any situations like that. But that would have, you'd think, a net negative impact on your life. So you have to be kind of reasonable and sensible about what you do want to tactically avoid. I'm I'm thinking of, say, there's a member or an extended, you know, member of your social network that has been abusive to you in the past, for example. Do you need to put yourself in that person's presence? My response would be no. Mm, Yeah. You know? You don't necessarily have to push through all the difficult feelings all the time. no. If putting yourself in front of a certain trigger is really harmful for you and it's stopping that would not detract from your life, then I think give yourself permission to do that. I think, you know, there there are other than behavioural strategies for how we might regulate. So, for example, with my networking party, maybe my strategy is I'm going to go for an hour. Yeah, right. You know, so I'm giving myself a time limit, which helps me not get intensely you know, worried or overwhelmed. I'm going to go for an hour and then I'm going to give myself permission to leave after that hour if I'm not enjoying it. If I am enjoying it, I can stay, you know, but I'm just, I'm giving myself from the outset a time period. And that to me speaks of self-compassion. Like you're not going, oh my God, Jackie, just get over it. It's fine. You're saying, well, actually I do find this difficult. It is important for me to go, but I only have to go for an hour. Like that—that that is a compassionate thing to give yourself, and actually, and quite an empowering thing because mm-hmm. you're you're in charge of it. Like, yeah. and even if it is going to be difficult, you're kind to yourself about that, and you can take yourself away after a certain period of time. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think when you think about emotion regulation strategies, there are so many. You have to kind of try them, try them on, and see what fits. Different strategies might work in different settings and for different emotions. And for different emotions, yeah. and so you've really got to trial and error them because you will find what works best for you. Like I'm not a journaler. My mum bloody bought me so many journals when I was young, <laughs> desperate to get me journaling. She's a journaler. I'm not. I mm. never filled them in. <laughs> I'm a talker. So I'll talk to you when I'm distressed or overwhelmed or I've got a big emotion and that helps me. So it is really about working out. And trying. And And, trying. And and they're all great things to try. And as you say, you might be really surprised at what works and something that works in some situation and for some emotion really isn't helpful in another situation for another emotion. But yeah, it's definitely worth trying them all because you don't don't know what might suit until you give it a go. Thank you, Jackie. That is really comprehensive and just I feel like it's really empowering listening to it because when you're in the throes of a big emotion, you can just feel so helpless and powerless and you can also feel like it's going to go on forever. Mm. So just hearing you say it is a bell curve, it will always decrease. You won't, even if it feels like it's permanent in the moment, it's not. It will always decrease and you will come back to some kind of neutral. And that's a wonderful comprehensive list. Like we can just keep trying. And these things... Can you practice them when you're not having a big reaction so you're more likely to go to it when you are? 
I get people to grade their responses. So if you think about that arousal or intensity, one to 10, there'll be some things that put you like eight, nine or 10 out of 10. There'll be other triggers that maybe you're a four out of 10. And I'd say, start to practice on the small ones. Yeah, You know, if you're having a really big, intense eight, nine and 10, use those in the moment physiological strategies to calm you in the moment and then revisit perhaps some of those other strategies like diffusion or reappraisal or talking or writing or, you know, come back to those big strategies when when the intensity's dropped. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. So let's talk about positive emotions. Sure. Because we all want more of those. And in fact, there is a way we can do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's really interesting when you start to look at the theory of why do we have positive emotions. This takes me back to my honours research when I was a wee, young, very early 20-year-old looking at what are the purpose of positive emotions. And, Amazing. And when you look at them, positive emotions help us connect to people. They help us be creative and innovative. They open our minds. The theory behind it is called the broaden and build theory. So when we experience positive positive emotions, we broaden our perspective and we build our resources, be it connections, be it knowledge, be it creativity, etc. The way I like to think of it is, you know, think about back in the day, you've just escaped the predator. So your negative emotions have helped you survive. But now you're sitting around the campfire with your tribe and it's during the kumbaya and the and the toasting your marshmallows. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have had marshmallows back in the day, but that's the visual that comes to my mind. It's in those times of connection and warmth and, and positivity that you might think of a new way to build shelter or yeah. find a new route for your journey, for example. So positive emotions, I think one, it's how often you generate them and that's a very purposeful act. When we look at the research and, you know, I always think numbers are crude, but, you know, the crude research line is we need three positive emotions to every one negative emotion just to balance Mm, because, because we focus so much more on the negative. Because we're hardwired to focus on the negative for survival. Uh, in teams at work, it's seven to one, seven positive emotions to one negative to have a high-performing team. So when you think about those ratios, how do you actively generate high-frequency positive emotion every day? You don't need it to be intense. You just need it to be regular and consistent. Okay. So, you know, looking people in the eye, smiling them, saying hello, saying thank you, being present in the moments, you know, really enjoying your coffee in the morning, nailing your wordle in three, not four, and being stoked, <laughs> stoked about that. You know, how do you That's get... a big one for me. <laughs> yeah. I've just been put onto global by my friends. Do you play that? No. I'm shit. I play wordle and waffle. Okay, well, global is you get a world map and you've got to guess either the country or the capital city, and the closer you get to it, the warmer the colour of the country gets, you know? And I'm I'd be worked so out shit my geography's not very good. <laughs> anyway. <Neither. laughs> but, you know, it's all those small things in your day that can provide positive emotion. Being in flow, which is when you work and you don't notice the time going past. Doing something that you feel really masterful at. Cooking a meal for your family or just loving the process of, you know, going out to your garden to pick the ingredients to come and cook with. Whatever it is, you can get high frequency positive emotion that's really helpful for you. And that's up-regulating, right? You want to get as much as that as, uh, as possible. I think the other component to that is when you're doing something which has a positive, helpful emotion attached to it, are you actually present and do you savour it? Mm. So savouring is a positive psychology term 
basically my layman's way of thinking about it is, can you suck all the goodness out of the good bits in life? You know, there's enough hard in the world. So yeah. do, do we really soak in and maximize the positive? And you can think about savoring in three categories. The first is anticipatory. So if you've got something coming up, can you like suck the most out of looking forward to it? Planning your holiday, seeing your friends, you know, do you think about it? Do you imagine it? That all produces positive emotion. When you're in it, can you like be present and again, savour the moments that you're in? Really really be aware of it. Really be aware of it and get the full experience of those emotions. And then you've got, you know, the aftermath, you know, can you think back, reminisce, all of those memories and harbouring those memories can really produce positive emotions as well. That's such a lovely thing to do. And it's funny that we have to remind ourselves to do that because it is so easy to just skate through the, the good things because there's no problem there, you know? So you're just immediately moving on to the next thing and then we're stopped in our tracks when there's a negative thing. But to remind ourselves to stop us in our tracks when we're having a positive feeling, I can really see how that would be so useful to regulating, up-regulating those emotions, but also just to kind of feel happier about your own life because you're noticing the good stuff as opposed to noticing the bad stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I suppose the last bit to this too, well, not the last bit, there's probably lots of bits I haven't spoken about, but another aspect of it is who you choose to socialize with, remembering that emotions are contagious. So if you want to experience more positive emotions in your life, more helpful, effective emotions, be really wise about who you socialize with. Because if you're with people that are pessimistic, quick to call on the negative, uh, downhearted, then that will spread to you. So, you know, being very wise around your company is also, I think, really important to your emotional experience. Yeah. You don't want to be absorbing other people's crap crap stuff. (laughs) Totally agree. Thank you, Jackie. That's such great food for thought, but I did just want to cover one more thing before we finish talking about this. And that is how we can talk to our children about this, because it's such useful knowledge. And as we said at the beginning of episode, wouldn't it be great if we learned this stuff Mm. in primary school? So if we do want to start sharing this knowledge and teaching our children these really important skills, how do we start doing that? Is there a particular age we should start at? How do we bring it up and how do we have those conversations? I think a lot of it is in us role modeling and showing our children what to do, as well as then teaching them along the way. So I think emotion regulation and and actually co-regulation, which is as a parent, I help you regulate, starts from toddlerdom, little children. I do this with my two-year-old. So I think as soon as your children are old enough to comprehend what's going on, you can be teaching them emotion regulation skills. So first, do you role model effective strategies in front of your children? Mm. Because kids will do what they see not what they hear. And what's so, an example of what that might look yeah. like? So so an example, again, in, in my household might be me saying out loud, I'm starting to feel really frustrated now, girls. I'm needing to go and take some breaths outside. Huh. You know, and I will say that out loud. So I'm naming, I'm naming it and I'm following through with an action. Or let's put on some music, girls, and let's dance really loud. Let's see if we can, you know, make ourselves feel really happy or, you know, being able to role model that and show them. I think then it's, you know, outside of us role modeling helpful behavior or if we've had a slip up (laughs) because we're not perfect, right? How do I then revisit that with my children? So I wouldn't do this with Coco, who's two, but with Ola, who's nearly four, I absolutely come back to her and say, earlier today, Ola 
mummy got really upset and I wish I had done it this way or Mm. it wasn't okay for mum to yell. It wasn't, you know, and so I come back and I revisit that with her. So again, I think that's showing her I'm human and I'm talking through with her how I'd like to do it differently next time, which is the strategy we want kids to learn, right? Here's some some skill sets, but you won't always nail it. So let's have that ability to be aware and to revisit and to try it differently another time. I think with kids, it's about Again, teaching them that emotional vocab, and that starts really young. I can see you're feeling upset because you have tears rolling down your face and your shoulders have dropped and your head is down. You know, if you can start to describe how you're noticing their emotion, you are teaching them an emotional vocabulary. I think it's helping children to put gaps between the the emotional experience and the processing of it afterwards. So teach them the distraction, give them time to calm. You know, I think all of us will know if someone comes in and tries to start talking to you about what's going on when you're in the midst of an emotional reaction, it's really unhelpful. So can we help our children calm by cuddling, singing, talking, going outside, you know. Not telling them to calm down. (laughs) Not telling them to calm down, which how often do we do that? Yeah. Or the suppression of our children, which is, oh, don't be silly, you don't need to feel that. Yeah. And and how often do we hear that? Yeah. Which which you're then telling them their emotional experience is not valid. valid. So I I know that can be frustrating for parents. You're busy. you, you, You don't understand why they're having this certain emotional reaction but they are. They are. It's and a it's, real one. And it's real to them. Yeah, and so we funny. have to be able to go through that same process. We teach them, we name them, you know, and when they're young especially, we do those strategies with them to help them regulate and calm. And the more you do that, the more I think they learn. You have to be able to teach children that they can cope and manage their emotions. We've got to back them, tell yes. them they've got an ability to handle it. Yeah, yeah. And that's just such a such wonderful skills, isn't it, to be giving the next generation who hopefully will be more versed in it than our generation and older generations than us. And in the the book I produced about three years ago, and Tony, yeah, I think your boys have got it. We do, <laughs> yes. Um, Get Jackie's book. <laughs> this is how you teach your kids about it. It is a book based on emotion regulation. So the book is centred on Orla, who of course is my daughter. It's funny when I when I was producing this, the editor said, I think you need to change the name. And I'm like, uh, it's my daughter's name. So no, <laughs> I, think, I think the world is clever enough to pronounce the word Orla. Yes, um, definitely. But all the story is about really her finding her, I call them her superpowers and her superpowers are emotion regulation strategies. And it walks parents and children through how to manage, you know, worry and anxiety, sadness and anger, which are three of the big feelings that young people have. And at the back of the book is a whole section on notes for grownups around how we can do some of these strategies with our kids. It is such a good book. It's called When the Wind Blew, and it's available at all good booksellers, Jackie. Yeah, and on my website. On your website. And actually at most libraries, if you want to go and get it out from the library, most libraries will have a copy. It is. We we read it a lot in our household, and it is a really yeah great, straightforward, easy way for children to be able to recognize and, and start the process of regulating their own emotions. Thank you so much, Jackie, once again. That was such a fantastic discussion. I have got personally got so much out of that and actually feel kind of excited about the next time I have an emotional reaction to something and I can start practicing these strategies. So for everyone listening, we really hope that this has been useful to you as well. Please do let us know. We love getting your feedback about what is working in your life. And then otherwise, we'll see you next week for the very final episode of season two. Gosh.
Yeah, how time flies, as we said at the start. Thank how you. time flies. As always, Antonia, for your insight and your beautiful way of surmising. Oh, thank you. Well, there'll be more surmising next week. <laughs> so until then, see you later, everyone. Bye. That was What Matters Most for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you did enjoy this week's episode, it would be great if you could rate, review and subscribe to this podcast as that helps let other people know that we're here. Thanks again. See you next time.